having a sense of serving something bigger than just the person who's who's offering the paycheck. Mm. Uh, whether that, that something bigger is the God that I believe in or the community that I'm a part of and love and trust or the project that so many of us are involved in around decolonizing the spaces that we're in. It just helps to have your eyes fixed on something that can lift you out of those moments that um, can be hurtful um, and at the very least are awkward. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Ocean Mercier, an associate professor at Teherengawaka or Victoria University of Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand. She previously completed her undergraduate and graduate studies at Teherengawaka, earning her BSc in Physics and Maths and her PhD in Physics. She leads and contributes to a plethora of projects, so many I can't list them all today, but many of them do highlight Matauranga Māori, interdisciplinary knowledge from the Māori people that can be applied to various fields, including but not limited to STEM. I'm so excited over the moon, really, to chat with Dr. Mercier today about her ongoing work and how she coalesces Mataranga Mori with Western science. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Mercier, what's your story? Oh, um, well, it's, first of all, it's just such a pleasure to be here with you today, Asma, and, uh, and to chat about something that's so very dear to my heart and my core. Oh, it's a delight to have you. <laughs> so wonderful to be here. In uh, our traditions, um, I would introduce myself this way. Ko hikurangi te maunga, ko waiapu te awa, ko ngātipora te iwi, ko ocean mercia te tangata. Which means my mountain is Mount Hikurangi, my river is the Waiapu River, my people are Ngāti and I am ocean. And so I have this connection uh, through an ancestral connection to the landscapes of the Ngāti people, which is on the east coast, or Te Tairawhiti as we say, of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, but I was born and raised in Wellington, which is the capital city, and I fell in love with the university here, Te Heringawaka, very early on. I think I was maybe in my second year of secondary school. In fact, it was earlier than that. Uh, my my first lecture that I ever attended was alongside my dad, who was studying law at Victoria University. Mm-hmm. Mum was uh, at philosophy group, uh, so dad took me to his lecture as a two-year-old, uh, playing with the, the doors of the lecture theatre. And uh, the lecturer at the time was uh, Sir Geoffrey Palmer, who's uh, a widely respected uh, legal academic, but also politician here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a very young age, I was kind of under the the spell of academia, as well as having these connections to my Maori people mm-hmm. um, through uh, through my mum. I wanted to go to university from an early age uh, and started to get excited about what I might do there from the age of 14 mm. as a secondary school student. Yeah. One of my inspirations for going into the sciences was uh, a science teacher called uh, Mr. Joseph Fernandez, or just we just knew him as Mr. Fernandez back then. Mm. And he had come to New Zealand from Sri Lanka, uh, and he brought uh, a really strong science tradition with him. Um, and a real passion for physics. So he set up a physics club for us uh, seventh formers who were were still doing physics. 
and we would meet at lunchtimes and do physics, fun physics things um, the, with Mr. Fernandez. And coming from Sri Lanka, he'd brought a strong tradition of women in science uh, along with him. And this was Wellington Girls College where I went to secondary school. And at that time, I mean, this is the early 90s, there wasn't the sorts of stigmas that um, our mums and our aunties and our grandmothers had around women in the sciences. But at the same time, there weren't that many role models. There weren't that many people who'd gone ahead of us. Uh, there wasn't, a, you know, there was just like uh, a few dribbles in the pipeline. There might have been someone 10 years earlier who'd gone through and done some amazing things. Um, so we took our inspiration from people who were a bit closer to us, perhaps our peers, um, our teachers, such as uh, Mr. Fernandez. Moving on to university, I um, I took encouragement from my good friends, Pauline Harris, who went on to become uh, an astrophysicist. Yes, I know her. She's the head of... You know her? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, she's the head of, I think, some sort of organization in New Zealand, right? She is, yeah. She was the founder of SMART, the Society for Māori Astronomical Research and Traditions. Yes, I've yeah, heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And she's amazing. She's also the co-director Māori of the McDiarmid Institute for Nanotechnology oh, and wow. um, Advanced Materials. Yeah, that's right. So, so she and I went to university together. We met up in our second year, yeah. and we were really unusual because we plugged through, finished our bachelor's degrees in physics and maths, mm. and then continued on into postgrad. Mm. And in our honours year, we were in a, a a reasonably sized class for that particular department in that university um, of ten students, two of whom were Maori. That was pretty unheard of because um, yeah the the representation of Maori in the STEM subjects uh, there's not many students coming through it's something that we've battled for a long long time there seems to be a growing cohort now of Maori and Pacific peoples coming through in the biological sciences which is really awesome to see but uh, still a bit of a wasteland when it comes to physics interesting yeah which is odd because the idea of physics is really intimately intertwined with Maori principles and knowledge, especially given how they navigated to Aotearoa, correct? I think that's something that you've actually discussed on another platform, I can't recall where, but what do you think is hindering Maori students from finding their way into these types of fields like physics? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely spot on what you've just said, is, is we have these traditions in our um, in our own knowledges in our ancestral uh, practices and traditions such as navigation uh, I think uh, it's Hoturoa Barclay Kerr so he is uh, one of the key people in the movement around traditional Pacific voyaging mm. and revitalizing those navigation and voyaging practices that uh, originally brought the ancestors of the Maori people to Aotearoa mm. Um, is this amazing prowess and observation and theorizing from those observations of you know where land might be 
um, but all this amazing navigation and, and charting techniques that were largely oral or sort of built into muscle memory and told in stories. So, yeah, there's, there's absolutely a really strong tradition there in our history, but there's this real disconnect between what our people get presented when they come into a science classroom, when they come into uh, a university to learn physics. It's completely, or traditionally anyway, it's been completely absent for the, from the curriculum, mm-hmm. any acknowledgement of the physics and, um, and maths concepts, uh, as you say, that are present uh, within our traditional knowledges. And I think that's really what drives me is, is a desire to give more visibility to that kind of knowledge and to set it alongside science so that we can have a productive and a fascinating conversation about the similarities, the differences, the ways that the two knowledge systems can collaborate, but also the ways that they can enthuse and inspire and give homes, I guess, to our people. As someone who went through and did my PhD in physics and then did a couple of years of teaching uh, in physics, I often felt odd (laughs) walking into the classroom as the teacher of the class. I mean, it it didn't help that I was quite young at the time, not much older than some of the students who were in the class, if I was older. Um, People would be like, who is that? And um, what is she doing at the front of the class? People having to kind of do this mental work for themselves. Oh, it's a Maori, it's a woman, she's young, and yet she's standing at the front of the class teaching me physics, and I'm a white male, um, we've got all these, uh, these traditions within the sciences. I can't reconcile that for myself, so I will... Um, I will challenge this person and I will challenge them and, and make sure they really do know their stuff. Um, so, so yeah, I did get a little bit of that in the classroom. But thinking about those other Māori and Pacific peoples coming through into these classrooms, how do we make those places that are, are more open, that are not so adversarial, um, places that they can feel at home? In? And to me, it feels like that's the key to unlock that, is recognising um, the the similarities and the parallels in our knowledge traditions and how they can only enhance each other. If we can find ways, and there are a multitude of ways that we can give students a sense of ancestral connection mm-hmm. to knowledges, mm-hmm. whether that's their own traditions or connecting across to other traditions, then it becomes then science becomes something that's not alien. Yeah. It's not something that belongs to another culture and not to my culture, but it belongs to all of us. And we can stand firm in that knowledge and feel confident in these places because that's really it is just this lack of confidence and not feeling at home in the disciplines. Um, that's really what drives me and that's behind much of the work that I do. Mm. Yeah. As you were describing the pushback from some of the students in your classroom challenging you and your knowledge base, it made me think about whether or not there's any pushback if you're presenting the, the validity and the value of Mataranga Māori to exist alongside and complement and perhaps even bolster a lot of what's been spoken about in Western science. Is there pushback in that space at the moment? 
Yeah, sure. So if I say a little bit maybe about the policies that are beginning to encourage people to engage with uh, Mātauranga Māori within the sciences, within the disciplines at the universities, mm-hmm. there is, for instance, for a number of years now, the Assistant Vice-Chancellor Māori at my university mm-hmm. Her office has offered funding for people who who would like to engage in in these projects, who would like for their research or their teaching to better account for or give space to Mātauranga Māori, Māori histories, um, Māori narratives generally Mm -hmm. in relation to what they're teaching in the classroom. There are lots of simple ways that you can do this without um, requiring funding. we we Māori, we, we may have oral traditions, but we're also writers mm-hmm. <laughs> and have a hundred years old, you know, multi, many hundreds of years of writing in our traditions as well. And, um, you know, just um, citing Māori authors is a, is a good start or reading them and citing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a nice, easy place to begin. Uh, but others are pushing the boat out a bit more. They're having conversations around decolonizing mm-hmm. and, first of all, making this the space more safe for the entry of Mātauranga Māori and then actually talking about uh, indigenizing their curriculum. So those two things we're, we're recognizing from, from some awkward experiences that they need to go together. Mm. You can't uh, expect for a space to, uh, yeah, we know that spaces are never neutral but at least it's it's clearing some weeds so that other uh, plants and growths can flourish, mm. um, or at least take take root and and bring some diversity into the space of the classroom or the research project or the community project or whatever it happens to be. So these conversations that we are having, I would say, are very fledgling still, and the situations where we're meaningfully bringing Mātauranga Māori alongside science is still quite rare. Mm, okay. Sometimes it's actually the students who drive that kind of work. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, the students are asking questions around why isn't my professor Māori or why isn't my professor Pacific? And if, mm. if not that, why are you not engaging with Māori and Pacific peoples, mm. um, their knowledges, their published knowledges? The students in the society that they're working within are often the ones who are asking questions that trigger changes. Mm. So these two things can sometimes just meet in the middle to tip the balance for a lecturer, for instance, who who might have policy and might have some support to try and do more of this or enable more of the uh, mātauranga science um, or mātauranga Western knowledge conversation. Are there any sort of governmental supports in place at the moment or perhaps proposed um, to be implemented in the near future that would support this kind of work? It's very exciting to hear that the students are asking these questions and demanding for for more. I'm wondering if there's also some top-down help to bring light to these issues. Yes, and I would say that it's uh, there is there are a lot of top-down uh, initiatives that... Uh, we're quickly having to come to grips with. So, uh, for instance, there has been in the last couple of years a mandate for schools to be teaching, so a revision of the history curriculum 
uh, mm. for secondary schools in New Zealand that uh, now requires much more New Zealand history, some core principles or some core events in New Zealand history and the New Zealand land wars. Um, to be taught, some history about Polynesian arrival, settlement, the evolution of Māori culture uh, in these islands. Uh, so those sorts of things are, I think it's next year that they'll, they'll start to be embedded in curricula. So teachers are coming to grips with um, some new material and um, looking for support. And there are, the Ministry for Education is providing support for these sorts of initiatives. And this is a, a project that lots of university academics are, are helping with, and including one of my Māori colleagues, Arini Loda, uh, and, and also uh, Professor Joanna Kidman are really um, some key players in this area. So it's really exciting to see that work. On the Mātauranga and science conversation, uh, that has also become, uh, in fact, it triggered a, some backlash last year, the suggestion that uh, Mātauranga Māori should be taught alongside the sciences in schools. Now, that's a more difficult the conversation's difficult, but also the planning on how you how you do that well mm. in order to do justice to knowledge systems. We've got some pressing challenges in the near future, actually, around what we're teaching in schools. And the universities will have to catch up with that work because we'll be receiving students in three years' time who've been through this curriculum and who come much more ready to engage in a plurality of knowledges in uh, diverse ways of knowing than our universities are prepared for, I think. So most of the efforts are happening in the research, science and innovation sector, where we've got a policy called Vision Mātauranga, which uh, incentivises research projects to work alongside Māori communities. Um, I've always appreciated how much the Maori voice, the Pacific Islander voice, has been incorporated into the fabric of Aotearoa, of New Zealand, which is not the case in Canada, as you now know, and as my listeners know, I'm based in Canada. And there have been moments where I've wondered why we haven't done that. Because as much as people say, you know, we have standardized curricula and this is how it's always been, that doesn't mean that's the way it has to be. Mm. I would like to share a quote of yours, actually, that I, I saw recently that I thought was quite powerful, and I was wondering if that would be okay and if you would mind elaborating on it related to this topic. Would that be all right? Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, watching, I think it was on the Teherenga Waka YouTube page, actually, and it's a beautiful video of whoever did it. Kudos to them. It's called uh, Solutions in Indigenous Science. And within this video, you say... As a scientist, you can't go into a place and treat it as an empty space, as if there's no history, there's no culture, that nobody's been there before. And for instance, take a leaf and do experiments on that leaf, because everything in the environment has some history, some relationship that ties it to particular peoples. Without an understanding of that social context of science that we're within, we're doomed to repeat some of the mistakes of the past in terms of science continuing, in a sense, to be handmaiden of colonization. I heard that and I was snapping my fingers. <laughs> One, it's so beautifully worded and it's so 
powerful and quite heavy and it, there's a lot to break down there. But could you elaborate on that sentiment? You highlight quite a few different ideas with respect to decolonization, which you were talking about before, but I'm going to let you take this wherever you want to. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that uh, that particular quote, and but I know the video that you mean, and um, mm. that was a, a a beautiful conversation with some of our videographers uh, at the university um, mm. around decolonization, as you said. But I, I think uh, one of, one of the things that myself and colleagues like Georgina Stewart, who's uh, a philosopher. Um, and has written a lot of amazing uh, material on this conversation between uh, science and Mātauranga, Māori knowledge. We talk about the assumed neutrality or the assumed objectivity uh, of spaces, um, and, and so the the idea popped out at us during the, the debate, the backlash about the, um, the Mātauranga alongside science and the secondary science curriculum that blew up last year, this idea that science is neutral, acultural, apolitical, you know, that it, that it occupies this, uh, this sort of somehow untouched, completely neutral space. Because that idea keeps popping up, I'm interested in just unpacking and exploring that and whoever will listen to just lightly challenge it and um, to ask people to, to think about about that assumption and think about it in different ways. And also for those who are in those kinds of conversations to give them some other ideas and other language around that assumed neutrality because it's that um, invisibility of whiteness conversation as well mm. that affects us all, uh, and this is completely removed from the sciences now, anyone who is of colour, who is non-white, uh, is impacted by this belief, this self-belief of, of uh, neutrality. Because that's so prevalent in the sciences, we ask ourselves the question, well, what do we do about that? How is that impacting on science practice? And what are the particular practices that we can question, maybe push back on a little bit? Uh, so this idea that a scientist can see themselves as, oh, I'm just you know picking some leaves for analysis. This belief doesn't belong to anybody. I can divorce it of uh, of any of its sort of culture that's been imbued upon it or any sort of spirituality that people see within it because I occupy a place of neutrality and objectivity and I'm above all of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we, we just wanted to really use that example as a, as a way to question that mindset, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote, and I thank you for elaborating on it. I found myself thinking about how it actually applies to my own field of expertise, neuroscience. Uh, as you know, a decent proportion of neuroscience experiments do use animals mm. to help us answer our research questions. And I'd often battled with the detachment that I at times felt when working with these very sentient beings. Mm. So I think that this is a great opportunity to remind ourselves, all of us, to think about this, that we're not neutral mm. and we're not truly objective. And we do need to recognize how much we have used sentient beings in our environment for our benefit and for the benefit of our work and our research. 
I do want to switch gears ever so slightly just because uh, a lot of my listeners are not based in New Zealand or in Australia or really on your end of of the globe as much. So I was wondering if you would be able to speak to some of the general experiences of the academic environment in New Zealand. I imagine you've heard about you know, the work-life imbalance that exists in a lot of labs in the U.S., for instance, or being severely underpaid Mm -hmm. when it comes to being an undergrad or a graduate trainee, or even a postdoc trainee, to be completely honest. Is it a little different in Aotearoa? Is it better? Is uh, What are the pros and cons there, in case people are thinking about making a big move for the next stages of their career? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, um, our borders are opening, so we need... We need people here, so if people are considering a move, then absolutely consider it. But uh, it's no picnic here, I, I would say, especially in comparison to Australia, our near neighbours. And I, I make that comparison, even though it's not a global comparison and possibly not so meaningful for your listeners. But it, even just that gap there highlights how far shy the salaries generally in New Zealand are compared to our our nearest um, country neighbour. And look, we're a small nation. Our um, investment in research science and technology is very low compared to the OECD average. It's it's something that our politicians uh, in the ministries have been lobbying for for a long time is is shifts in that, but very incremental. There's not ever been a real flush of investment that I'm aware of into into the sector. Mm. And so uh, one of the things that uh, that is happening for us at the moment is a review uh, with a view to a bit of an overhaul of the research science and innovation sector investment and how that is dished out between government departments or crown research institutes. Uh, A a typical scientist or researcher in a crown research institute is expected to bid for funding to support their research, um, Mm -hmm. and that possibly seems quite innocuous in and of itself, but because there is so little funding sloshing around in our system, a lot of effort is is expended upon this this kind of work of bidding for projects and um, not getting them. Um, so I, I would say that there are strong flowing on effects to early career researchers and even postgraduate students. Yeah. And Maori and Pacific peoples who are in those sorts of roles, early career researchers or postgraduate students, do also um, suffer the additional burden of cultural trickle-down or I guess the responsibilities, cultural responsibilities, mm-hmm. such as, for instance, responding to the vision mātauranga policy um, mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier is a burden that is disproportionately felt by Māori um, particularly, but also Pacific researchers. And there's some fantastic work over the last few years that's been done by early career researchers Tara McAllister, who's Māori, and Seriana Naipi, who's Pacifica, uh, supervised by Dan Hikurua and Joanna Kidman, who are Māori academics, who are keenly aware of the issues of, of burnout that are, you know, seem just around the corner for many of us. So where there's these big opportunities, that's also created a lot of demand on the few staff that we have to school people up, to raise people's cultural capability, to help in their, their sort of decolonizing projects. So so the demands on researchers generally are strong. 
we've got a term here that was coined by one of the uh, directors at the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment, uh, Aronga Takirua. Aronga Takirua, so your aro is your focus or what you're looking at, and Takirua means split into two. Mm. So Aronga Takirua is a concept that describes the sort of cultural double labour that is um, is being exacted of uh, particularly Māori, I would say, but also um, Pacifica academics and, and researchers and scientists and um, and even students in, in this space as the, the whole sector, as everybody in it, sort of grapples with the need to find ways to enact vision mātauranga policy, to do better by communities. So it's, it's a good motivator. But it has these sort of really difficult flow-on effects of high workload and um, complicated kind of workload as well. It's not just double the time in the lab, but it's really um, complex relationship building, you know, helping people to uncover their own racism. And, um, you know, it's really difficult stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it sounds quite similar to what a lot of minoritized individuals feel in their respective labs in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. It's unfair work. It's often incredibly unpaid and mm. disregarded as non-work, but it's yes. such a, a burden because you don't get to just leave that on the wet lab bench when you leave the lab because it is a part of you, right? So when someone is making comments or is needs to be educated about their own racism mm -hmm. you can't just be like well okay I, i've had the conversation i can switch off my brain and i don't have to give it any more thought very rarely is that the case so it's a burden that also follows you home and that's mm -hmm. I, I look forward to the day it's no longer like that i'm not sure it'll be in my lifetime but i can always mm -hmm. hope and pray i'm wondering yes. if you have any any last words of advice that you wish you'd either heard very early on in your trajectory to associate professor or something that you've even thought to tell some of your students now as they walk into the classroom about absolutely anything. This can be about some of the topics that we talked about today or it can be completely unrelated. Any words of wisdom that you'd like to share, Dr. Mercier? Yeah, sure. No, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I um having a sense of serving something bigger than just the person who's who's offering the paycheck. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that, that something bigger is the God that I believe in or the community that I'm a part of and love and trust or the project that so many of us are involved in around decolonizing the spaces that we're in. It just helps to have your eyes fixed on something that can lift you out of those moments that um, can be hurtful um, and at the very least are awkward. Humour goes a long way to, um, to diffusing a lot of that and just getting alongside people and making sure there are people, there's someone uh, alongside you that recognises and understands what you're going through and can have a laugh about it. Mm -hmm. um, then the, I guess there's the sense of something bigger helps to put into context those, whether it's microaggressions or you know, other sort of uh, attacks on our work they can shrink in, in relation to, to the better good that, that we serve. And for myself personally, I just um, get uh, a lot of satisfaction, personal satisfaction, out of working hard um, mm. and, and just really giving my all to whatever it is I'm working on at the time. 
So whatever you take personal satisfaction in, just make sure that never disappears from your life. <laughs> so whether it's working hard or, or it's music, yeah, whatever it might be, keep hold of that. Not very profound, sorry, but... <laughs> no, I feel like this entire conversation was full of all these gems that I'll be hurriedly writing down. I don't know if you could hear me actually writing down a lot of oh. the things that you were saying, because there were things that either I've thought about and it was just beautiful to hear back, but also you mm. just have a way with words of saying things in such a profound way that you just, you carry those words with you and you're like, wow, that's, that's something. And you just have to like digest it. So thank you. Thank you for your words of wisdom at the very end, but also for this entire conversation. It's been wonderful to be able to speak with you today. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you so much. Kia ora. Kia ora. (laughs) 